Our text for this study this evening is John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. John 8, 1 through 11. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. In our last study, we focused our attention not on the text itself that we've just read, but on the criticism of many that say that this passage of Scripture uh, does not belong in the Bible. We considered last time internal testimony, internal to the Bible, internal to the Scripture itself, noting that Without John 7.53, the last verse of the previous chapter, through John 8.11, if we simply take those verses out of this uh, passage so that John 7 goes through verse 52 and then John 8 begins with verse 12, uh, there would be a huge, a huge a uh, senseless hole left uh, in the text. It would, uh, it would just be uh, pretty obvious something, something's not right here because in verse 52, you have the chief priests and the Pharisees, basically the Sanhedrin, speaking to Nicodemus, and 
basically sarcastically saying to him, uh, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And they said this with sarcasm to Nicodemus because he had said uh, concerning Jesus, we don't, we don't judge somebody. Our law doesn't permit us to judge a man uh, without hearing what he has to say and what he's done. And uh, they were so upset with what Nicodemus said that they used this uh, very thick sarcasm uh, against, the, uh, against Nicodemus at this uh, point in verse 52. So after saying that in verse 52, if we simply then jump down to verse 12, then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Uh, we have to ask, who is the them? Then Jesus, then spake Jesus again unto them. Well, if it simply is continuing after verse 52, uh, it appears that he would be speaking to the last reference would be to the Sanhedrin. And yet it was, he was not present in that particular assembly at all. And it says, again, then Jesus, uh, then spake Jesus again. When did he do so the first time? Well, again, if John um, 7.53 through 8.11 is not included, there isn't a first time. Uh, that this, this is, again, the, the first time is what would be omitted if if again it's not a part of uh, God's word. So internally, this, uh, to omit this part of scripture puts uh, the, the, the text of John chapter eight uh, in a very uh, difficult place, confusing place. And we also noted by way of internal testimony last time that the Greek words the Greek words that are used in John 7, 53 through John 8, 11, that are only used once, that is sometimes used as a criticism that this is not a part of the text, that there are a few words that only appear in these verses and appear nowhere else in John, John's gospel or in other parts of the scripture. That's, uh, again, not a very good reason to omit this portion of God's word um, and uh, to cut these verses out of scripture because that happens in many places throughout scripture, hundreds of places where a word is only used once. And we don't cut that out uh, thinking that it doesn't belong in scripture simply because it only appears once and doesn't appear somewhere else uh, in scripture. So that's again uh, a very poor reason uh, to be thinking that this ought not to be included uh, in the text of scripture. And then we looked at uh, external testimony. 
external testimony, that which appears outside of the text of Scripture by way of evidence and testimony. And there are four categories of external testimony. There are Greek manuscripts that can be consulted. There are ancient versions. Those are the translations from Greek into various ancient languages. Uh, Latin, uh, Coptic, uh, Syriac, of uh, various languages uh, at that time. Thirdly, there are the ancient fathers, the church fathers, that can be consulted to see whether they uh, include uh, these uh, verses in their quotations and citations. And lastly, there are the lectionaries. The lectionaries were the uh, readings of scripture appointed for a particular uh, Lord's Day or other days of the week. Uh, and those lectionaries were appointed by the church as a whole. Uh, and so those lectionaries, uh, it's, it would be like what we read. In other words, I send out each week an order of worship before the Lord's Day, and I include the passages of Scripture that I'm going to be reading uh, from the Old Testament and from the New Testament. And if we had that same pattern consistently, this, those same verses basically um, every year you, you have the same verses that would be read, that would become like a lectionary that they had. They had the same verses that they would read on a particular day. And so they would read those verses and that was repeated year after year after year. And so that became their lectionary. And uh, again, uh, lectionaries would, would uh, uh, have uh, verses in them uh, that were read and uh, uh, they didn't read obviously the whole Bible. Uh, every single verse uh, was not included, but there were portions either from the Old Testament or portions from the New Testament that were included in the lectionaries. And the conclusion uh, that, I, that uh, I reached for my own study and I uh, submitted to you is that uh, the external testimony as well as the internal testimony uh, are in favor of this passage uh, clearly being included in scripture and it's not simply sufficient testimony, it's more than sufficient testimony. And the uh, Holy Spirit has through the ages indeed kept pure and entire his, his uh, scripture as taught uh, by the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, section 8, where it says, The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical, that is, genuine. 
Um, and then it goes on to say, so as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who have right unto and interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language, vulgar means common uh, language, of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. And I encourage you, if that is uh, not enough uh, to, uh, to incline you in the direction that uh, this is to be included in the uh, Holy Scripture, these verses, uh, you might want to go back and review the study from last week where much more detail was given. Now we want to look at the text itself, which we just read. And let's uh, begin with verse 1, chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. So after the sarcastic remarks of the chief priests, which were Sadducees, which the priesthood was basically filled with Sadducees, and then the, it says in the Pharisees, there in the Sanhedrin, uh, they had hurled the sarcasm at Nicodemus in verses 51 through 52. Uh, and then in 53, it says, every man went into his own house. So the, the Sanhedrin, that meeting ended and they dispersed. They left that meeting and went each one to his own house. And then in verse 1, chapter 8, verse 1, the Lord Jesus the peers went to the Mount of Olives, spent the night there, perhaps in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, and uh, that seems to have been something he did uh, when he was in Jerusalem, not just on this occasion, but maybe even uh, a practice that was his. In Luke 21, verse 37, <clears throat> says and in the daytime he was teaching in the temple and at night he went out and abode in the mount that is called the Mount of Olives verse 2 and early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came unto him and he sat down and taught them so Lord Jesus then when morning came, made his way to the temple and began teaching and instructing the people, uh, many people. It says, and all the people came unto him. So there was a, a good crowd of people that came to be taught by the Lord. And uh, as was the common posture for teachers, they would uh, sit down in order to teach. The Lord Jesus sat down and he taught them. Matthew 26, verse 55. Again, uh, 
this is when he was uh, arrested there in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says, In that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you laid no hold on me. So that was, a, again, the rabbis, the teachers, they would not stand usually to teach, they would sit usually to teach. Verse 3, And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, the teaching here of Jesus there in the temple is abruptly interrupted uh, by representatives of the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders there, who led a woman into the midst of the crowd who had been taken in adultery. The Jewish religious leaders had not been able to arrest uh, Jesus earlier. They had sent the uh, temple police to arrest Jesus back in John 7:32, and they came back empty-handed and they said to, to the temple police, where is he? And they said, we've never heard a man speak with such authority, to a man speak like this man speaks. And so they were restrained uh, by God from taking him, arresting him at that time. So now, here's another opportunity. Uh, they uh, attempt to entrap him with this uh, legal matter concerning this woman taken in adultery. And they hope, and their plan is, that Jesus will say something when he is questioned that will uh, be contradictory to what Moses says so that uh, Jesus may then be arrested in teaching something that is, that is opposite to that contradicts what Moses said. So this is what they're really seeking to do. They're testing him, as we'll see in a moment. They're, they're putting him in this situation, trying to get him to say something uh, that would uh, bring him under condemnation and that they could arrest him. So they're continuing to seek to arrest the Lord Jesus, and this is the next uh, attempt on their part. <clears throat> they're not just accusing this woman um, of, of a sin uh, namely adultery they're accusing her of a crime because they want to put before Jesus that she deserves to die so they're not just saying you know she committed a sin before God but that she committed a sin, a, a crime against the law of Moses which requires her to die for this particular crime. Uh, and so it's listed again uh, uh, among those that are crimes in the Old Testament that are capital crimes. Leviticus chapter 20 
verse 10. Leviticus 20, verse 10 says, And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. If a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so shalt thou put away evil from Israel. So they're, they're not interested in a sin that God, can, uh, that uh, bringing and saying that she sinned and she needs God's forgiveness. Uh, they are bringing this woman uh, before Jesus uh, to see what he says that she deserves. Does Jesus agree with Moses that she should be put to death or not? Verse 4, They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. If they were seeking to entrap Jesus with an ensnaring question about the law of Moses, uh, they actually, uh, in other words, they were, if they were simply trying to put Jesus in that position where they entrapped Jesus with an ensnaring question, they actually did entrap this woman. Uh, they're trying to do that to Jesus, but they had already done so to this woman. Uh, she was entrapped. Where is the man? Why did they bring only the woman before Jesus? Uh, adultery is committed between a man and a woman. The man is not brought. Uh, she, it says, was taken in adultery with whom? Uh, and so again, this, this leads us uh, to, uh, to the place where uh, this, was, this woman was uh, entrapped how in the world did they find her in the very act if they didn't set her up, uh, if they didn't entrap her? And so, again, this was all staged. I mean, it actually happened, but they staged this. this whoever the man was was probably paid off uh, by the uh, religious leaders in order to bring her to this place before Jesus uh, so as to ask this question and put this question to Jesus, should she die or not, according to the law of Moses? This is not saying that she was innocent of sin. Uh, she was not innocent of sin. Uh, she had committed adultery. Even if she had been set up, uh, she still had, uh, doesn't say she was raped, um, uh, but that she committed adultery. So again, uh, this was apparently, on her part at least, uh, it was a voluntary act uh, of sin, but she was placed in this position for the express purpose of 
presenting this case to the Lord Jesus. Verse 5. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? So this is now the entrapping question, the ensnaring question. Moses said she should be stoned, but what do you say, Jesus? Verse 6. This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. What was their motive? Again, we can see that this was a setup because their motive here is very clearly stated. They did so in order to tempt him. They didn't care about this woman one way or the other, it would seem. They were just interested in trying to find some way to arrest Jesus. And she was a convenient pawn that they uh, saw could be used to reach that end. If Jesus answered that uh, she should not be stoned as an adulterer, uh, he would then be accused by the religious leaders of that time of promoting sedition against God, against God's law, being an adversary to the law of Moses. If Jesus said that she should be stoned, uh, they would turn him over to the Romans for advocating the Jews should take such matters of capital punishment into their own hands. Remember what is said in John 18.31 when uh, Jesus appears before Pilate. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. Uh, so if Jesus said that she should be stoned, uh, that would be like the likely response. So whichever way Jesus responded, uh, they had something set up to be able to arrest him. So if he said that she should not be stoned, they could arrest him for um, violation of the law of Moses, if, they, if Jesus said that she should be stoned, uh, then he would be taking the place of the Roman governor, and uh, then they could have him arrested likewise. It says here in verse 6, uh, kind of interesting, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, and then in Italics. Uh, this is again the, the words in italics are are added by the translators to try to fill out the meaning uh, of what they understood the text be saying, as though he heard them not. Which I think is is a is a you know accurate depiction of what Jesus was doing and writing on the ground. He was ignoring he was ignoring them basically at that point. 
So he acted as though he, he did not hear them uh, because he knew their motive. Uh, he knew what they were seeking to do, that they were trying to entrap him, that they had entrapped this woman uh, and used her uh, to bring her for the express purpose of, of an ensnaring question to which Jesus would respond and then they could arrest him. He knew what was going on. And so he was refusing to answer their question. And so uh, he stoops down and he starts um, writing on, on, on the floor. Again, you know, these, they didn't have clean carpet. This was in the courtyard. And so there was enough dust and things of that nature there that, you know, with his finger he could uh, write upon the ground uh, there in the courtyard of the temple. What was Jesus doing when it says he wrote on the ground? Some think Jesus uh, was writing the names of those who were involved in setting this woman up. Uh, from the oldest to the youngest, that he was writing their names uh, in the um, dust of the courtyard temple, of the, uh, the temple courtyard. Uh, some think that Jesus was uh, writing verses uh, from God's law that state that uh, death is uh, the just penalty for proven adultery. Others think that this was simply an outward sign uh, that Jesus wasn't paying any attention to them an outward sign that Jesus wasn't going to respond to their question. Well, we don't know exactly, for sure, with certainty, what Jesus, why he was writing on the, the floor at that point. But inasmuch as that it says in uh, verse 6 um, that... Uh, they, uh, verse 7, we'll get to this in a moment, but let me just uh, note in verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself. So they, they, were a they were asking, they were talking to him the entire time he was stooping down, but he didn't answer them. So again, uh, the fact that he was not answering them, though they continued to ask him this question, wanted a response, says that he was ignoring them. Uh, he, he wasn't uh, playing into their trap at all. That seems to be probably, you know, I, I would say, again, the most likely reason that he was writing on the floor, uh, not that he was writing something uh, on the floor that, that was specifically related to this case, but I think uh, it was perhaps similar to um, if you were asked continuously by somebody uh, a question that you didn't want to answer, uh, that you, you know, turned your back to that person and you looked at the a wall or you looked at another object or something like that, it would be saying, I'm, I'm not going to answer your question. And so for Jesus to stoop down and write on the floor was in effect 
the same, most likely, uh, the same kind of, of uh, response on his part. He was just ignoring them. Probably, uh, as well, um, the best way to not only to respond to the ensnaring question, but also to upset them, you know, that he's just ignoring them. Uh, and so just uh, what greater contempt could he show for what they were doing, both in using this woman and, and, and seeking to entrap him uh, by way of just ignoring. Sometimes um, ignoring somebody uh, pours more coals upon their head than if you do respond. And so the Lord Jesus just, again, in this situation, uh, ignored them. Uh, now verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. As we said, these religious leaders continued to ask Jesus the same questions. They were not about to walk away uh, and having gone to this extent, to the trouble that they went to, to set this woman up in, in this situation, to ensnare and entrap her and then to bring her uh, having caught her or taken her in the very act, uh, they weren't just going to walk away after having gone to all this trouble, perhaps again having paid the man off uh, that uh, she committed the adultery with. So they weren't just going to probably walk away. So they continued to ask, uh, were persistent in, in the question that they were asking the Lord Jesus. So Jesus finally stands up and issues a challenge to them. A challenge to them. This is his challenge to them. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. So Jesus here is not saying that he that is perfect and without any sin and anything that he has ever done, let him cast the first stone. What he's saying here is he that is without sin in this matter, he that is without sin and having set this woman up and ensnared and entrapped her and then brought this before me to partake in that sin in order to entrap me, let him cast the first stone. Now, why would Jesus be saying that? Well, because one cannot bring a charge of crime against another who is guilty of that same crime of, and involved in that same uh, crime. If this is a crime and they have induced, they have set her up to 
uh, to commit adultery, then they're partakers of her sin. They cannot therefore be witnesses against her according to the law of Moses. They could not be witnesses against her. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 2 through 7, talking about witnesses, Deuteronomy 17, verse 2. If there be found among you within any of thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee, man or woman that hath wrought wickedness in the sight of the Lord thy God, in transgressing his covenant, and hath gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded, and we can simply say this has to do with idolatry, but this would also be true of any capital crime, um, uh, and adultery, murder, adultery, any of these capital crimes, that uh, that would also be, tr be transgressing God's covenant uh, to commit those uh, particular crimes. Verse 4, and it be told thee that thou hast heard of it and inquired diligently, and behold, it be true, and the thing certain that such abomination is wrought in Israel. So there has to be an investigation. Uh, there has to be um, witnesses called. Uh, one has to, again, look at the testimony, judge whether these are credible witnesses. Uh, you can't simply, you know, one person utter an accusation against another person and that person be considered to be guilty and be taken and stoned to death. There has to be two or three witnesses, as we'll see, and everything they say has to be confirmed and verified. Verse 5. Then shalt thou bring forth that man or that woman which hath have committed that wicked thing unto thy gates, even that man or that woman, and shalt stone them with stones till they die. Notice verse 6 and 7. At the mouth of two witnesses, or three witnesses, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death, but at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death, the hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people, so thou shalt put the evil away from among you. So the Lord Jesus appeals to the law of Moses here when he says, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone. Uh, in other words, he that again, is uh, indeed a credible witness, a, a true witness, who's not implicated by the same crime or involved in the same crime. Let him, who is a true witness, cast the first stone. So this makes it very clear, first of all, that Jesus is not putting away the law of Moses. 
Uh, he wasn't saying that the law of Moses is ended. In fact, you know, remember Jesus said he didn't come to destroy the law. Uh, he didn't come to do away with the law or the prophets, but to rather fulfill it, uh, to establish it, that which is of a moral nature. If this was uh, simply talking about he that is without sin in a general sense, without any sin, then there would never be any uh, execution of a capital crime. Someone could commit murder, but nobody could put the murderer to death because who's without sin? Who could ever be a witness if it's talking about being without sin in a general sense? So it's talking about being without sin in a very specific sense not in a general sense. Uh, God doesn't expect perfection on the part of witnesses before they can testify in a court of law. Uh, but they can't be involved in the very crime that they are uh, uh, bringing by way of accusation against someone else. They disqualify themselves as being a credible witness at that point. And the reason they couldn't do so is because they were involved. They were partakers of her sin. They had entrapped her. They had not brought the man, as the Old Testament says, should have happened. They didn't bring the man who committed adultery with her. And so, this uh, again is the challenge that the Lord Jesus puts to uh, these religious leaders. Verse 8. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So he resumes his posture uh, that he had previously. He resumes his writing on the ground, once again showing contempt for their plot, for their scheme. He had answered them. As they had asked him to answer, he had answered them according to the law of Moses. Now what would they do? What would they do? What would be their response? Verse 9. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone in the woman standing in the midst. All of the religious leaders and the witnesses, from the oldest to the youngest, left when Jesus exposed them to be false witnesses against this woman. Again, not that she had not sinned in committing adultery, but that she could not be justly accused of a crime deserving of death when there were no true witnesses to the crime, when they were all disqualified. The crowd of people 
the multitude that were in uh, the courtyard of the temple were still there. Those to whom Jesus was teaching earlier before the religious leaders brought this woman into the midst of them, they were still there, but all of these religious leaders uh, would have been quite the scene uh, for those multitudes to see once again how Jesus shamed these religious leaders for their hypocrisy, uh, for their uh, hatred of him, that they would again lead um, this woman, set this uh, uh, up in such a way, lead her to uh, uh, commit adultery. They were again setting the stage for her. Uh, they partook in her sin. And so uh, the multitude were able to see the hypocrisy of these religious leaders. Jesus exposed them very, very clearly. Verse 10. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Now that all of her accusers uh, were gone because they had no legal case, according to the law of Moses, according to God's law, they had no legal case against her. Jesus asks, where did everybody go? Do you have any accusers to now condemn thee of a crime? To condemn thee of a crime that deserves capital punishment? Is there anyone left, Jesus says? In verse 11, she said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. She replies, all of her, all of her accusers are gone. There is no one now to bear witness or testimony against her as far as having committed a, a crime deserving of punishment, deserving of uh, the, the law of Moses being exercised against her. Without witnesses, uh, one cannot execute uh, an individual. Uh, that would be arbitrary. There has to be witnesses to the crime. Now someone may actually, again, be guilty of a crime, but without witnesses, that person cannot be condemned to death without witnesses. Um, and again, she didn't even dispute the fact. That didn't even seem to be an issue, whether she had committed adultery or not. The issue was, was she justly charged by witnesses for having committed a crime? This, sh this shows the importance of due process 
and law. That if there is not a due process by way of charges and witnesses and, and examination of the witnesses to be able to determine whether somebody has committed a crime, even if the person has committed a crime, that person cannot be executed. There has to be, God has laid it out, there must be two or three witnesses. We can't simply throw out due process. There, there is, that's, a, that's a very much a part of God's law, due process. Not just arbitrarily or just moving beyond witnesses to execution of somebody. So Jesus says, well, she says, no man, Lord, um, that would seem to imply that uh, she is calling him um, uh, God, uh, seems to be calling him certainly something more than just a man uh, at this point. Whether she has been a part of the multitude that has heard Jesus teach and preach, it may be the case. might even lean in that direction as, as I'll point out in a moment but she says no man Lord and Jesus said unto her neither do I condemn thee what does Jesus mean they wanted Jesus the religious leaders wanted Jesus to condemn her legally um, as a criminal that deserved to die Jesus says here that he does not condemn her legally as deserving of death in a legal sense in a legal sense because there were no true witnesses but he does not say that she's free of moral condemnation She's free of legal condemnation. But she's not free of moral condemnation. That's why Jesus says, go and sin no more. She had sinned and needed to be set free from that sin and fall no longer into that sin. Now, Jesus here does not condone adultery just because he didn't say she, did, she should be put to death, she should be stoned. Jesus is not condoning adultery, but even commands her not to continue to sin in that regard. Uh, and I would say... Um, he doesn't say, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more by committing adultery, but he leaves it more general, go and sin no more. Certainly included not committing adultery uh, any longer, but not falling into sin in general. 
Jesus seems here to assume she knew there was forgiveness with God. That God was a merciful God. He doesn't focus, because he doesn't focus on that. He just says, go and sin no more. <coughs> uh, it would seem that if this was a, a woman who had no idea of God's forgiveness, God's mercy, God's grace, if this was a woman who had no instruction with regard to the gospel, that something might have been said to her about that. But rather, the Lord just says, go and sin no more. That may indicate uh, that, as I said earlier, that she was knowledgeable of the teaching of Christ. That she was knowledgeable of, uh, of uh, the Lord's mercy and grace and it perhaps knew that Jesus had said that, uh, that the prostitutes, the harlots, and the tax collectors will get into heaven sooner than you religious leaders will because they know they're sinners. They know they need a savior. So contrary to the fathers that we talked about last week, that Augustine, you'll recall in a quote that I cited last week, uh, that Augustine said that the silence, not the opposition to this portion of scripture, uh, this, this passage being in scripture, but the silence of these uh, church fathers on this portion of uh, 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 this passage being in scripture uh, was due to the fact that, that the time in which they lived, it, appear, it would appear that Jesus was in some way condoning adultery by letting, uh, from their vantage point, letting her off the hook. But as we have gone through the text here, uh, Jesus was addressing, for the most part, a legal question according to the law of Moses. And on that, uh, he was saying, she should not, on the basis of that, she should not be executed. She should not be stoned to death. But he was not letting her off the hook with regard to her sin before God. It was something that she needed to repent of. She needed to seek God's forgiveness for. And so, again, whatever the motivation of uh, ancient church fathers uh, who did not comment uh, in their commentaries on this passage doesn't mean, once again, that they didn't believe that this passage should be included in scripture, they would need to say that for us to draw that conclusion. They would need to say this passage uh, is not authentic. This, this passage is spurious, this uh, uh, in doubt, it's in error. It shouldn't be there. You know, their silence may be due to other reasons than simply that 
they believed uh, that uh, it, that it was um, spurious, that it was in error to include it. There may have been other reasons, and Augustine supplies one of those reasons. Due to the historical context, the culture that time, it would appear to people that Jesus was excusing uh, that particular woman's um, sin in some way, going light on her. And uh, they um, did not want to communicate that. Again, I don't justify the fathers for uh, doing that. I think that the proper, the proper way would have been for the fathers uh, to explain, go through the passage, and explain to the people what the passage teaches. And that Jesus wasn't excusing the sin. He was just saying she's not, she cannot be accused of a crime when there are no witnesses. So Jesus upholds here due process and criminal law, uh, which is very, very important. Uh, and I think uh, when due process uh, fades away within the laws of a land, then it becomes purely arbitrary. People can be thrown into jail for whatever reason, held held in jail, imprisoned, never told why they are in jail, and never again see the light of day if there's not due process or be executed um, and uh, without uh, any witnesses being brought forward uh, that are credible witnesses. So this is very, very important to justice. Uh, and uh, Jesus upholds uh, the Old Testament law of God as to justice and how to proceed. So let's stand and ask God's blessing upon what we have read and been taught from the Lord tonight. We thank thee, our God, again for thy word. Thy word is truth. Sanctify us through thy truth. We ask, Lord, that that thou would help us uh, again to rejoice uh, in the fact that uh, Jesus upholds that which is right and faithful and true as he always does and uh, that he exposes the hypocrisy uh, and the, and the uh, entrapment of these uh, religious leaders uh, who cared not about this woman and uh, Jesus shows uh, even in this case, a woman who is caught in adultery, there is forgiveness. Uh, there is forgiveness, which is implied because the Lord says, go and sin no more. So we thank thee and praise thee for thy, thy truth, that there is no sin uh, so great that Thy grace and thy mercy is not greater yet. And that we can, by thy grace, uh, cease from walking in, continuing in those sins through the power of thy spirit, through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, through our union with Christ. Uh, bless this text to our, our, our understanding. In Jesus' name, amen.